Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Brad Schneider, founder of Nomad Data, amongst many other things. Brad has had a long career with alternative data, going back to the early 2000s, when he was doing pioneering work, web scraping data and using it to predict corporate earnings information. His latest project, Nomad Data, sees Brad trying to solve the alternative data discovery problem, matching buyers with sellers using a sophisticated algorithm. So in this episode, I'm joined by Brad Schneider of Nomad Data, formerly of various hedge funds, which we, which we will be getting into. Um, thank you very much for joining today, Brad. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, so, Brad, you have uh, an extremely long and distinguished experience in the alternative data world, and it's in a world, and it's a world which isn't that long in itself. So, um, you have a claim to have been there at the very, very early days, the kind of bleeding nose early days. Um, but let us. Why don't we? Why don't we go back? I don't know how much of your um, your early experience. Why, why, I'll leave it in your hands as to as to kind of set us up for how you first got into alternative data. Yeah, I mean, the, the term is a relatively new term. I, I had started in the data space, it's been over 20 years now. So I had started a, a data company out, out of uh, university, basically focused on helping corporates use their data to better understand their customers. Uh, so that was my first sort of foray into into what data looked like. It was, it was an interesting time because this was sort of right around uh, 2000. And, and back then, you know, we could ask a company to send us all of their data, all their customer data, their transaction data, and they would literally load it on a hard drive. I don't even think we had thumb drives back then. <laughs> and they would ship it to you. You know, no NDAs, no nothing. You know, here's all our data. This was kind of the dot-com boom where everyone was suddenly in the internet was kind of, you know, taking off as an exciting new thing. And so data was was just part of that bubble, was it, in terms of everyone just saying, yeah, just throw it around. Like, this is this is the future and we need to all get involved as much as possible. Yeah, it's funny. So even back then, Amazon was was really a pioneer. Uh, I remember over 20 years ago, all we would talk about was was Amazon's collaborative filtering algorithms, which were really there to figure out, well, you know, you bought products A and B, somebody else mm. like you bought A, B and C. So we're going to recommend C to you. And there was a lot of press made about that. And that got a lot of other companies interested in, well, how can we use our data to better understand our customers, how to sell more effectively, how to better price our products? And, and so that, I think, created a lot of tailwind early on. Uh, and everybody was so open. Nobody was really scared about you know, hacking into your data. The, the Internet was still extremely crude back then. Mm. And so we, we had a front row seat to some you know, really amazing data sets. And that sort of opened my eyes to really what you could do with data. And that was, you know, I don't want to call that alternative data. That was more you know, primary traditional transaction data. But to see it coming directly from a company you know, sort of opened my eyes to what might be possible, even if you didn't have a front row seat to that data. So I've had Gene Exto on this podcast before, and he has a claim to having named alternative data in 2015 with a with a Wall Street Journal article. Um, 
so this is obviously long before i'm kind of a i i i've i'm a bit of a kind of i see myself as a kind of amateur alternative data historian in this podcast because everyone i speak to i kind of go back a bit further but the earliest that i've got to is is gene exter um and the and the earliest idea i've got to is kind of um majestic research being created i think in about 2002 um so what you're saying in 2000 was this is kind of before there's an industry you were uh you were finding getting hold of data which was astoundingly easy to get hold of on the on a relative basis and investing it what were you what were you what kind of data were you getting hold of and and how were you investing it so we were we were a software company back then, so we weren't investing based on it. We were okay. basically helping the, the companies use that data to make smarter decisions. And so, well, that wasn't alternative data. That was my first experience at using data to understand how a company was doing. And one of the companies that we had worked with was Dell. And you know, I was also getting into finance at the time, and I remember reading about Dell through their 10K. You know, as an analyst, I learned that the business descriptions at the beginning of a 10K are really valuable to understanding how a company generates revenue, the different segments. And so I'd read through Dell's 10K, and then I remember getting my hands on their transaction data. And that told, I don't want to say a completely different story, but a much more granular story as to how the business really worked. I mean, it was basically the razor razor blade model where they were selling their their core desktop PCs at a loss, and they were making up you know all of that uh, margin on the peripherals, on the CD-ROM drives, on the larger monitors, uh, and that might be obvious today, but back then that it wasn't clear that that's how it was working. And we could literally see for each item going into each PC, what was their cost? What was the price they were selling it at? What was the margin? And so from that, you could really piece together how the business was working, uh, which to me was, was eye-opening. And I sort of carried that with me as I went over to Wall Street uh, to understand that you know there's a lot more here than I had realized to help you understand what's driving a business. Is that why you went over to Wall Street? Did you did you have the kind of the the light bulb moment where you were like, well, wait a minute, with this kind of data, we can make some serious money over there, or, or was it was it kind of a coincidence? Yeah, the two the two aren't really related. I, I I've always been interested in technology really broadly, and so sitting at that one company, we saw this one tiny little problem in the in the technology landscape, and I, I wanted to see more. I mean, it was such an exciting time. You know, these are the early days of Microsoft and Oracle and, you know, Google wasn't even around back then. There was just so much change. And I wanted a, a closer a closer seat to what was going on. And from where I was sitting, it looked like investing in it was, was the way to go because you could just follow so many companies, get access to so many CEOs and do so many different types of checks that you could really get a, a sense more holistically what was going on in tech. And that's sort of what drove me to move into investing, to, to have that, that vantage point. So what was, so we're, so moving to wall street, we're talking about Palo Alto investors. And so were you using, did you immediately find ways to be using alternative data in on, on wall street or was it something you came back to later? It wasn't right away. You know, that, that experience was really my first experience on wall street. So I think I had to build up a lot of the fundamentals of how, how to invest. So Mm. I spent a lot of time, uh, they put me through the CFA, the Charter Financial Analyst Program. So I spent a lot of time studying for that, learned how to build financial models, learned how to do fundamental research. But very quickly, you know, I, I realized that there were so many other opportunities for us to learn about these businesses beyond you know, what we were doing. And it, it's kind of funny. So I started that job 
it was the beginning of 2004. And I remember they mm. recommended that I read a few books to learn sort of the, the investment process that they had. And I ended up uh, being given, I believe it was the Intelligent Investor and Value Investing. And I believe those books were already 20 plus years old at that time. And so to me, you know, I was thinking, well, how, how is it that this process that has been going on for 20 years can still yield returns? Uh, and, and obviously over the subsequent 15 plus years, we've seen that that's become more and more challenging. But very quickly, you know, I started to remember back to my, my life as a, you know, whatever I was, a data engineer, a data scientist, and thinking, you know, there, there's a lot of data on the web that can tell us how these businesses are doing. And so I think it was 2005 it was really the first experiment of this. We, we were tracking Google. That was one of the companies that I covered. And Google was one of these companies where everybody knew Google was doing great. Google was going to do great. But if you've ever invested in technology, it's it's all a game of expectations. So, you know, it's kind of like football. What's the what's the over under? And and the over under was pretty high. I mean, they had to grow something like 30, 40 percent a year. You know, if they reported growth of 29 percent, we were in trouble. The stock would drop 30, 40, 50 percent as has happened in many cases uh, being invested in tech. Wow. And so I needed a better way to understand broadly how the business was performing. You know, they were adding literally tens of thousands of advertising customers, but we needed more granularity. And so that was really where it started. So I, I built a series of scrapes to try to get to Google's revenue. And so I started out, you know, there, there were a couple of key things that I realized I needed to know. So, so one, obviously, I needed to know the number of visitors to Google's site. Uh, another was how often people were clicking on advertisements. And lastly, how much money were they getting per advertisement? And so I built a series of scrapes to figure that out. When we put them together with a little bit of math into a revenue projection, did a little bit of back testing, and we made our first bet. So we, we invested in a, a quarterly report and we, we hit the, the nail on the head. We, we pretty much knew exactly what Google was going to report in revenue. And that was the aha moment. Yeah. Uh, and so we started doing that more and more. We started, um, you know, realizing that there were other companies we could do this with. Uh, we started to realize that the government was putting out really useful data sets. And, and that's how the journey began. Did you, did, did you make waves with that in terms of presumably not everyone on the on the street was doing that? So you had that aha moment. It sounds like it came from kind of creativity, ingenuity, kind of fiddling in a kind of industrial revolution kind of kind of way. I hope you got an internal recognition at least. Oh yeah, I mean, if, if you've ever worked in finance, you know your portfolio manager loves to brag when, when you're doing something uh, unique. So I remember the head of the firm bragging about how we had this this way to to more effectively track how how Google was performing, and we 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 did it again and again, and it was just it was incredible. You know, all of a sudden we had all of this new visibility. I, I didn't hear of anyone doing anything like that for for probably a couple more years. For sure, uh, certainly not on the street. Um, it's interesting because it requires a unique set of skills. I think that's been a problem that's been with us. I think since the beginning of alternative data and you know, before we had that that term, which is you you really needed to know a lot about technology infrastructure, how it works, how web pages work, how all the different protocols work, uh, but you also need to understand how different businesses work. Mm. And you kind of have to put the two together to understand where in the data supply chain there exists useful data. And then you need the, the business context to actually do something useful with it. Uh, and so at least at that time, there were not a whole lot of people who had um, engineering backgrounds who had actually done applied engineering and then were 
investing uh, from a from a you know analyst or portfolio manager seat. And I know people are trying to develop that skill set more, but back then uh, that just didn't exist. There were a lot of walls built around finance to make it really hard to get into if you didn't start out in it. So I think for a lot of engineers, it was a path that didn't really exist for particularly for fundamental firms. Okay. So then you're, so this was, so um, you were clearly uh, doing all sorts of um, positive things for, for Palo Alto investors and, and um, they're appreciating you, but you ended up in, uh, or you moved on to Jericho Capital. Um, is that a, is that a hedge fund? Yeah. Yeah. Jericho, I joined Jericho when they were a startup hedge fund. Uh, I think they were, they had just raised their first external capital in this is roughly 2013. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was basically running technology sector investments there. So this was mostly semiconductor, enterprise software, enterprise hardware, telco equipment. Uh, yeah. And it was, it was a run the, the fund did and continues to do extremely well. And so that was a launching off point for me. Yeah, for sure. How did that come about? How did you, do they recognize you as, as being, um, do they, they plucked you? <laughs> how did they, how did that happen? The, the move across? So I, I ended up leaving that firm. Uh, I ended up leaving Palo Alto Investors in, in 2010. Um, this is sort of after 2008, which was a pretty rough time for a lot of firms and sure. was, was basically looking to move up. I mean, I was a supporting analyst at the time and was looking to be the the sector lead. And so, you know, in most cases you have to kind of leave the nest and, and go somewhere else and, you know, met up with Jericho in the early days and they were looking for somebody with, with deep technology investing and, you know, hands-on experience. And, and that's sort of how I ended up there. Fantastic. So, and how did the, how did the data ingestion as you moved from Palo Alto, which is a place where you had um, kind of initiated some of this thinking and, and using the data to, to track the markets and how did, um, when you left Palo Alto, how did you find, the rest of the market have they have they caught up were they ahead did you, were you learning things or were you still did you still feel a little bit ahead of the game you were teaching them things that you developed yourself in 2013 no no one was doing anything i mean it was it was very uh, uncommon i mean in a few interviews people seemed interested in the approach but i, I didn't run across one fund that said oh yeah that's something we do uh, maybe there were one or two vendors that they were buying but you know 99.999% of the market had no idea what this space even was. And, and so for me, Jericho is interesting because they were very open to trying new things. They were very open to spending money uh, on new research approaches to see if they worked. And so they were, they were quick to uh, basically green light new, new approaches and then you know quick to sort of cut them if they weren't working. So for the first time I had a lot of budget and, and some of these data sets started to come to market. And so I started to see a lot more of what you can buy out there. And still a lot of them were, were self-service. So you get these really interesting data sets, but they required a, an enormous amount of work on your part. You really had to do a lot of processing. You had to know how to program. They didn't have these slick UIs that some of these providers have today. So it was still a lot of work, but uh, having having that budget made a huge difference. So what kind of data sets were were emerging that were changing the game for you? What, what kind of thing do you think of when you when you say that? I remember one of them, and I can't remember the name of the company, but it was this is sort of pre-jump shot, similar web. It was a it was a very exhaustive web traffic data set, so you could see something like eighty percent of U.S. consumer web traffic across mobile, across desktops. It was just an incredibly powerful data set, and I remember using it to figure out just incredible things about 
you know, how customers were behaving, what they were doing, you know, how they got from one site to another. And that was a really exciting space. I mean, unfortunately, fast forward a, a couple of years now, and that company, because of a, a change in the way the internet works, uh, was no longer viable. And then, you know, we've had a couple of companies come and go in that space. So it's been a, it's been a harder space to find vendors in. You moved from Jericho to Tiger in, in, uh, in 2013. Read across about the, the kind of the hedge fund industry in general. Where was the challenge with alternative data at the time? Was it in all the, the data cleaning? Was it in the, was it in the um, trying to, uh, was it the, the creativity that you needed in order to, to, to think about what question you need to answer? Where was the, where did you feel that the competitiveness was happening in, in alternative data at that time? I mean, the funny thing is even then it was not very competitive. Most, most people were not doing anything. Um, so the challenges for me were probably different than the challenges for a newcomer. But for me specifically, the, the problem was the volume of data. All of a sudden, instead of one or two data sets, I had hundreds, you know, some I was buying, some I was scraping, you know, for example, uh, we had built scrapers on, I think about four or 500 different job sites. So, so within a, a company's job site to keep track of uh, how many open job requisitions they had, we were mm -hmm. uh, scraping across LinkedIn to understand how many employees they had. And so that represented hundreds of scrapes. And, and so the problem was, how do you do anything with that? You know, if, if you have 500 different files, how do you know what's going on? How do I know that something has just changed with Facebook or with Oracle or with somebody else? So, so my problem was, was analytics. So I, I had years before started building a skeleton for something to help address that and ended up putting more time into it at Tiger. So what I really wanted was a Bloomberg terminal for my alternative data, right? Because, you know, imagine being a financial analyst, having to go to each country's stock exchange website to look up a price, going to each country's you know regulatory uh, body in order to pull up financials, that that would be a mess. But that that's what the world of alternative data still looks like today. And so I started to build infrastructure earlier, and then continue that at Tiger uh, to to be that that Bloomberg terminal, if you will, for myself. And a lot of it was building in alerts and notifications, and also making it easy if I was getting data you know, from five different places on, you know, Cloudera uh, that I could see them all in one place. I could build them into some sort of an analysis that I could recall very quickly. And so once I had that, now it allowed me to go through a lot more data. And so it allowed me to, to use that data to come up with ideas. So I used it, you know, in a few different areas. So one was to screen for new investment ideas. I mean, one of the biggest issues with, with, coming up with new investment ideas is, is where to spend your time. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of companies I could dig into and the work is, is not a small amount. So if I can steer myself in the right direction to start with, I'm going to have a lot more productive outcome. And so we would use that data to figure out which companies were inflecting. Uh, we started to build tons of custom scrapes, started to buy more data. Uh, but I think at that time for someone that was new to the field, the problem is pretty much similar to what it is today. You know, I have this data, but how do I think about it? How do I handicap it? I mean, that's a problem when we get any sort of new signal, whether it's data or otherwise, is how do I, how do I think about the accuracy of this data? How do I know when to trust it, when not to trust it? And so I think that was a problem then and now for, for people that are, are new practitioners. And 
that's that's a problem that you went on to uh, to to um, to create a, a solution to. So um, so we'll we'll come to that for sure. But let's just dwell on the data a little bit more in when you were in the in the hedge fund space at um, at Tiger and Jericho. Um, what forms of data? So you're so you're scraping tons. It sounds of of different data sets. Uh, in a kind of proprietary way from the internet yourself you're doing a lot of diy scraping um was what what other kinds of um broadly perhaps uh what 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 kinds of perhaps alternative data were you finding useful were, were you purchasing data as well were you finding external data sets of use as well and if so what what kind of sectors back then it was it was mostly scraped data or we would license data sets but you know, our, our budget was still relatively small. We were a small startup hedge fund, so we, we couldn't be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on data. So we had to be scrappy. And so we would search out data sets that were free. I mean, for example, a lot of the U.S. government procurement data sets, you, you can just download off the web. You can pull them as a CSV file and start doing analyses. Mm. There are other uh, public bodies where you can get access to their data for free. I mean, for example, a lot of the domain name system data. So where does a given domain name uh, actually point to? So we, we started licensing that data and running analytics on it, and it was incredibly valuable. You know, one of the sets of companies we followed were the web hosting companies, the, the Squarespaces and the Wixes of the world, trying, you know, those are very long tail businesses. So getting a read on them was very complicated, but we were able to get a free data set, which is still available today, where I can literally see every single customer they add. Uh, every paid customer that they add, at least I could then. Um, and it was amazing. I had a running count by day of how many customers they had. I knew w- which companies they had acquired, lost. Uh, and we would also use that to, to figure out who to call. So we would, we would call a lot of these new customers and say, well, how did you decide to use one versus the other? Um, do they would do they know that so was this was this publicly available on purpose were they were they aware that they were making this available did they know what it was being used for so they weren't making it available that, that's the interesting thing about alt data is a lot of times the data for for understanding a company is being put out by somebody else somewhere else on the network so the domain name system is a public system anyone can get access to to routing information on the internet that information is required to make the internet work and so if you understand how it works uh, you you can just basically ask for it and they'll dump these enormous files to an FTP site for you every single day. And that will tell you a ton of different things. But knowing that you can do any of those things with that data is, it's a real challenge. And that's a challenge that ultimately Nomad Data is, is looking to solve. You've got all these data sets that can do amazing things, but nobody knows it or not many people know about it. So, you know, a lot of this data ends up unused or, you know, just not fully taken advantage of. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so let's let's get through. Let's get into adaptive. Um, so th- the problem you were you were talking about in terms of actually extracting data from um, a from a set of data sets and 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 kind of building a Bloomberg terminal for um, alternative data is something that you um, that you created a, a solution to at, at adaptive. Um, how did that? What did that look like? So really the goal of Adaptive was to be a single user interface for alternative data. The the problem we were solving is that if you bought data from five different people, you had five different UIs, you had five different sets of credentials, you had five different platforms that you had to learn how they worked. If they all had alerting, you had five different sets of alerts. And so it just wasn't efficient. 
And so we wanted this single platform. And so it was a lot of work. So we had to go out and strike partnerships with dozens and dozens of alternative data providers and get them comfortable with giving us their data for free. And they didn't know who we, we were. They didn't know who I was. Uh, and so it was a real slog in the beginning to, to build that confidence to get people to work with us because their data was their asset. And they were, in many cases, hesitant to, to hand that over to somebody that they didn't know. And who knows what we were doing with it. And so adaptive was uh, so you were you were getting uh, arranged uh, agreements with alternative data providers to to put their data on adaptive, and then it was it was kind of an interface which a buy side investor uh, could use to to as you say like a Bloomberg terminal for alternative data. How, so take me on to take me on to Nomad. Sure. So we ended up selling adaptive back in February of last year, mm-hmm. uh, and the goal there was to to really get more scale. Uh, it was a very complex business and that we had to maintain these pipes to a lot of different people. Uh, there was a lot of work to onboard new providers. And so we wanted scale to be able to do that more quickly uh, in order to more effectively maintain. And, and we just needed more engineers in general. So uh, we got acquired and, and that gave the business the scale that it that needed to, to sort of continue growing. And so the, the timing was kind of odd for me. So uh, we signed the deal at the end of February last year. I left the country almost uh, the next day to just take a little bit of uh, time and relax and sort of regroup and think about what was next or, or not think about that. Mm. Uh, and so started traveling. And, you know, as I was traveling, you started to hear more and more about coronavirus, you know, which was in the background and moved more and more to the foreground. So I was actually in Cairo when, uh, when the world started to shut down. And so I was forced to come back a little bit early uh, and so flew back in New York, uh, into New York, and New York was already shut down. And I had sold the company, so I, I didn't really have a job. There was nothing going on. And so that that started the process of, well, what, what am I going to do now? What's what's next? Wow. And started to just brainstorm different ideas. And I, I kept coming back to one that one issue that I had seen customers have over and over again, which is, you know, most people understand what, some things that they'd love to be able to do with data. You know, I'd love to understand my customer's journey when they leave my store. You know, I'd like to understand statistics across the legal industry about certain types of law cases. But going from that use case to, oh, I should work with domain name system data. Oh, I should work with, you know, web traffic data. Not many people know how to do that. Even even the most sophisticated people, you know, have a tough time doing that, translating those business problems into Here's the data to solve it. And so we started building. Um, you know, I had built a list of data sets when I was at Adaptive. That, that was really what the industry looked like. Everybody was building the, the yellow pages, the searchable yellow pages to find data. And, you know, I saw firsthand that that just doesn't work. You know, you introduce so much bias by asking the user to already know the kind of data. And, and the problem with the yellow pages for data is that it's, you know, buying, buying data is not like, hiring a plumber, right? If, if your toilet doesn't work, you hire a plumber. There's not a lot of expertise required to figure out that you need a plumber to address that problem. Uh, but figuring out that a data set is the right thing to address a given business problem is a, a really hard leap to make. Uh, it's not it's not obvious to the buyer in any way. And the entry for a data set in one of these lists, it's really talking about what the data is. It's not talking about what the data can do. Uh, one, one, one example I like to use is consumer credit data. 
So we ended up doing a lot of bespoke projects with consumer credit data at uh, at Adaptive, and that's basically credit scores, you know, loans people are taking out across tens of millions of Americans. And so if you go to the web pages for one of these consumer credit files, it basically just describes the fields it has, the type of loan it shows, um, you know, the credit score field, but it doesn't tell you, okay, well, what are the things I can solve with that? And one of the things we use that data for, for example, was figuring out how many people were leaving Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. That use case is not listed anywhere on, on their website. In fact, there are no use cases listed on the website. And that's pretty common for data, especially data that's what we call um, highly dimensional. So there's a, a lot of different descriptive columns in the data, and you can aggregate it and um, manipulate it in a lot of ways. You can use these data sets to answer you know, millions of questions, uh, and you don't really know that upfront. And so we wanted a model that would, would basically connect these parties together. So, uh, hey, I don't need to know anything about data. I'm a business person. Here's what I'm trying to solve. I'm a consultant. You know, here's the, the case I'm working on. What data can help? And so mm -hmm. we're trying to short circuit that process and make it a lot easier. And by doing that, we think we can grow the alternative data market substantially. Yeah. So you guys, you're a, um, it's a very, it's a clever idea that somebody can say, I need such and such data set. Um, or I, sorry, I need such and such kind of data in order to ask the question that I'm asking. And you have built or, or the, the idea of the, so your software is that, um, it recognizes who is the, data set that, that's going to be able to help with that and um and and kind of reach it reaches out and 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 puts the two in contact so it's not a yellow pages it's kind of a smart yellow pages in a way it's it's a it's it's a both sides yellow pages that the question comes to you but then you go and seek the answer as well is that right yeah and one, one important clarification is you don't say what kind of data you're looking for you say the use case you're trying to solve yeah if you've chosen the kind of data you've already biased yourself so much and we found that even experts in the data field don't realize that there's tangential data sets that can solve the, the problem they're trying to solve. And so the, the way it works is you, you type in that use case, you can choose to be anonymous when you submit it. And what happens is our algorithm will go through that search, kind of pull out what are the key things that this person is looking for. And then using natural language processing, we'll figure out data providers that are most closely related. And then we'll ask them, They'll get an email that says, hey, somebody's in the market to solve this particular problem. Click here to let us know if your data can help. And so we basically crowdsource the answer. So they come into the platform. They describe how their data is relevant to that use case, if it is, or, or they say it isn't. And then as a buyer, you just get a short list of here are the three providers whose data can solve your question, along with the how it can solve your question. And then at that point, you choose who to engage with and we, we put you in direct contact and, and that's it. Uh, but the really important thing is that our engine is learning. So with each search that we complete, it learns new things about different data sets. And so over time, we think this can turn into a Google style search for data where those results are, are instantaneous or at least some of them are instantaneous. And that will just take building up our data set more and more. 
as as is so often the case, then this is you're solving a problem that you encountered in the previous life. You you were just mentioning that the challenge, one of the challenges that you had at Adaptive was persuading data providers to kind of come onto your platform from from a kind of from 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 naught miles an hour to get to get straight on. Um, this solves it because uh, you're you're instead of saying come and join our platform and there will be you know business at some point, um, you are saying uh, there's business. You know, uh, there's a there's a there's a request for your data, so come and get it type thing. It's a it's a it's an immediate payoff for them. Yeah, we found that the sales process is so much more effective when you know what you're talking about. When you know what the use case is, the providers can do research. They can come back with thoughtful answers that excite customers and and create FOMO. Right? You can't today have impulse buying of data. But what we've seen is that we've been able to facilitate that. Um, I think 75% of our clients have purchased a data set through an introduction made on the platform. I mean, that's unheard of. Uh, you know, it's so much more effective than data providers running around and saying, you know, hey, this is my data product. You know, here's some ideas of what you can do with it. We don't know if you need it now, uh, but when you do need it, just try to remember that we exist. Mm-hmm. That's just, you know, what, what is called spray and pray, you know, in, in sales lingo. Uh, and it's just a lot of work. Uh, and this is so much more effective. You log in, you see specific use cases, you respond to the ones that you're relevant for, and most of them end up in conversations. Uh, and I think that's just better for everybody. And if we can help facilitate those sales, we we can help this industry grow a lot because there's a, a big friction point uh, at that part in the in the food chain. Is it possible we'll see a world in the future like like we've seen with Google of, of a whole industry springing up of trying to... Um, trying to uh, be as attractive as possible for your algorithm. So they like as many keywords or the equivalent, you know, what, what people do for Google now, the SEO, um, that an alternative data provider could try and uh, reverse engineer and think about what makes your algorithm recognize or, or, or seek. And then um, can, do you think your algorithm might be, might be vulnerable to that? I mean, it's a nice, it'll be a nice problem to have because it'll mean you're at the center of the market, but it, and, it's, and it's one you've got time to solve if it does happen. Yeah, I mean, I welcome that problem. I'd say one one difference here, though, is that really the text that ultimately drives the learning is not coming from the data provider. It's coming from the, the customers. So mm. the customer's inquiry, if it successfully matches to a provider, that is what is used to sort of grow the knowledge base. Uh, I'm sure people will figure out a way to try to game that, but that, that's a problem, you know, when this is a scaled marketplace. Sure down the line okay oh well, i hope you i hope you i hope you encounter it <laughs> i <laughs> sure problem. hope so too <laughs> we just announced a fundraise of 1.6 million dollars so congratulations on that so what does the next year look like with with nomad data this year is all about scale for us well, the last year has been all about engineering and sort of putting the building blocks in place you know one of the the things i was really focused on was having this product be something automated I want somebody to be able to discover the service, sign up themselves, put in their credit card on their own and just start using it. I don't want this to be something where we're calling you up, we're doing a sales pitch, we're going back and forth with you on how to use it. We want to make this fully automated. And I think we're most of the way there. So I'm really happy with that. Now it's all about scaling the buyers. We've got over 600 different data sellers on the platform. And that ranges from some of the traditional folks that have always sold data to corporates. So we have a lot of corporates that are uh, interested in coming on the platform because it has anonymity. So a provider uh, can actually respond to an inquiry without sharing who they are. 
And because there's no list, there's not really a whole lot of leakage that somebody is selling their data. And, and there's been a lot of concern among corporates about uh, reputational risk. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be growing both sides of the market with, with an emphasis on the customer side. And so uh, with that money, we're going to be hiring folks to help support customers, help onboard more data providers, and do a lot in the, the marketing and, and PR side of the business. Fantastic. And so more broadly, stepping back, um, where do you see alternative data as being right now? You've been in it for a very long time. So you've seen it develop um, from various uh, perspectives. Where do you see if you if you kind of squint your eyes and look at it with kind of in a in a kind of, you know, for or from or, or from 20,000 feet or whatever? Where do you see alternative data as being and, and, and how do you see it developing in, in general? I still think we're in the earliest, earliest of stages in alternative data. You know, if I look at the web, you know, in the early days when you had to go to Barnes and Noble, you would literally buy a book of web pages, a list of what was out there. And at that time, the the web was growing, you know, a lot more slowly than it feels like it's growing today. And then things like Google unlock the long tail. They allow people to get noticed and the ecosystem explodes. The same thing happened with, uh, Apple and Google, uh, the app stores around growing the, the mobile phone ecosystems. Once you unified and standardized discovery, uh, payment, uh, delivery, those markets exploded. And so I think we're sort of pre-Google, pre-app store, uh, you know, using an analogy for, for where we are in alternative data today. I think, you know, we'll be an enabling technology and I think there'll be other enabling technologies that allow this this market to grow thousands and thousands of percentage points. You know, I remember looking at the mobile phone app market. It was a space I invested in, you know, this is over 15 years ago now. And the whole market was hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, then you bring all these efficiencies to bear and now they're hundreds of hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and I expect to see the same thing here in data. Once you solve for these friction points, you're going to see uh, some pretty large acceleration. And it's, it's nice to see some of these companies in the data space already going public. Uh, I think that will be a real vote of confidence in the sector. Mm, for sure. Absolutely. Well, brilliant. Well, Brad, thanks so much. That's, uh, that's really, that's, that's great. I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a long journey <laughs> and it's been, uh, and you've, as I say, you've seen alternative data and from, from various, in various guises and from various positions. Um, so, so yeah, it's a really interesting, you've got a very interesting vantage point upon, uh, from, from seeing it. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for, for, taking us through and and um and 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 congratulations again on the on the money raise with nomad and 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 best of luck with this with this exciting year ahead of you thanks so much mark we couldn't be more excited nervous (laughs) all all those things fantastic